Welcome back to our podcast series, The Idea of Greece. Today, we bring you our seventh and final episode in this podcast series, produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation's History Committee. This production has been full of labor and full of love, with the sole intent of bringing you the story of the revolution that is in-depth, yet easy to understand. I'm your host, Georgia Balogiannis. This podcast series is also under the auspices of the Greece 2021 Committee, which is spearheading the global commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution. Special thanks go out to our podcast sponsor, Agape Greek Radio. Today's episode is called A Modern Greek Nation. I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast, Professor Sakis Gekas. Sakis is the Hellenic Heritage Foundation Chair in Modern Greek History at York University in Toronto and our resident historian on this project. Hi, Saki. Hello, Georgia. Great to be back. Great to be back as well. And it's episode seven. We made it. We made yes, it. Yes, it's been a long journey. Uh, we've covered quite a lot, uh, but I hope we didn't miss out anything important. And we certainly couldn't leave out the making of a state during and immediately after the revolution. To help us wrap up the saga of the Greek Revolution, we're joined once again by Michalis Sotiropoulos. He's adjunct professor at the University of Thraki and postdoctoral fellow at the University of Athens. Good to have you here, Michali. Hello, Georgia. Hello, Sakis. Well, thank you for having me once again. And of course, hello to all our listeners. We've already established that this revolution was grueling. It was mired in bloodshed and many lost their lives or were injured and disabled. I can't help but think if those on the battlefield ever in their wildest dreams could have imagined that one day peace would come and there would be a Greek state. And that's the story that we're going to examine today. Mikhaili, I'll start with you. Once the rebels took Peloponnesos in early 1821, how did they go about setting up a new government? So you need to negotiate a lot. You know, that's a natural thing to do. And you need also to have a vision for something bigger. And that was there from the beginning. But in order to implement that, to actually put it on paper, it's more, you know, it's easier said than done always. And that takes time to develop. And you need to bring all these things, all these people together. And the revolutionaries did that when they convoke the first National Assembly at the end of 1821. uh, And then you have a more nationalized system, not entirely national from the very beginning, and we will talk about it later on. We, the descendants of the wise and noble nation of the Greeks, contemporaries of the enlightened and civilized peoples of Europe, and beholding the advantages which they enjoy under the protection of the impenetrable aegis of the law, find it no longer possible to suffer to the point of numbness and self-contempt the cruel yoke of the Ottoman state, which has weighed upon us for more than four centuries and which instead of reason knows no other law than its own will, commanding and persecuting all things despotically and capriciously. After years of slavery, we have finally been compelled to take up arms to avenge ourselves and our country against a tyranny so frightful and in its very essence unjust as to be neither equal nor even comparable to any other. 
That was George Scandalis reading from the Greek Declaration of Independence written in 1822. Well, Michali, after hearing this document, it seems that rather than focusing on the future and being inspirational, this declaration instead seems to be to some extent rooted in the years of subjugation the Greeks lived under. Why do you think it was written that way? Well, first of all, I would, you know, we should say that this is probably the most beautiful text produced by the revolutionaries. And it's a very careful text. And exactly what you're saying about the arguments, the claims they're making at the very beginning is because they're trying to justify what they're doing. And when I say they're trying to justify, the question that comes to mind is, okay, justify it to whom? Actually, when you declare your independence, the audience that you're having in your mind is not the domestic audience. You're not declaring independence to tell the Peloponnesians that we want to become independent. What you're doing is you're addressing the international public sphere, the international sphere in general, the great powers, those listening on international level. So you have to justify that revolt to them, not to your own self. You have already justified it for yourself. So it is the great powers that are listening and the ones you are addressing. So the main thing is, first of all, to justify who you are and who you are is a Greek nation. So what proves that you are a nation? Actually, because you have been there, you are a historic nation, that you have been there before the Ottomans. And that, of course, creates a right to revolt and a right to reclaim your rights. Because if you were here before the Ottomans came and they conquered, and as the first line say, you never accepted that conquest. So that gives you the justification to say, okay, we have to end that conquest, that subjugation, and take back our rights. And the second thing they did was to present that war in terms of Christians versus Muslims. And of course, that's a brilliant thing to do, because the only way to justify at that moment the revolution, apart from those historic arguments they were making, is to present it as a class of civilizations, as a class of different religions. Why? Because those powers listening were Christian powers. So they could identify and accept and in a way help the Greek cause because it was a Christian fight against the Muslims, against Islam. Nonetheless, uh, besides that very successful public relations campaign through the Declaration of Independence and other documents that were sent to foreign powers around the world, disagreements among factions emerged Uh, let's say, between the first National Assembly in 1822, the second, and the beginnings of the Civil War period, 1823, 1824. Could you tell us why do you think that uh, was the case? First of all, when a new political system is being built, like the rebels were trying to do from 1821 onwards, you have to answer to two key questions. So the one is, where does power lie? We build a political system, but who has the power? And where does this power originate from? And the second question, probably most difficult, is who speaks for the nation? And this is the, you know, the key political question always. Who has the power and who speaks for the nation? Because naturally the power, at least in theory, uh, would lie in the nation. But who, who speaks for it is the problem. So what you have during the first two to three years during the revolution, that the revolutionaries were trying to find a balance between the regional political systems that they had set up and the national government. So one question for them was, was it the regional government that was speaking in the name of the nation or the central national government? 
And maybe for us, it seems natural that it's the national government speaking. But actually at the time, especially after the first constitution, the regional political system, the regional organizations were not dissolved. They were left in existence. So for many people at the time, think about if you were a farmer or shepherd or whatever, in Rumeli or in the Peloponnese, it wasn't certain who was speaking on your behalf. Was it the national government or was it the regional government? Naturally, the one that you knew was the regional leader or the local leader or those who participated in the regional administrations, not the national, the national administration, let's say. So this tension that was there from the very beginning, from 1822, when the first constitution is being promulgated and put into force, up to the second constitution in 1823, this tension is there. And of course, they realize after the, those, during those two years that you cannot have both of these things together. So what they did in the second national assembly in Astros in 1823, they dissolve those regional organizations. But that creates a power vacuum at the local level. And then that leads up to the civil war. So this is a civil war that takes place during the revolution. Would you say that, uh, it's, is it fair to say that every revolution is followed by a civil war, more or less? And this is what happens in Greece too? Now, the cynical perspective here, and I, I think I would go with that, although I'm not a you know, I'm not a cynical, but I think that goes for this situation, is you cannot have a national state or a revolution, a successful revolution, without having some sort of a civil war. And that, of course, happened to Greece. Actually, it happened in most big revolutions that we know, big or, or, or small, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's those civil wars that actually answer those difficult questions that are being raised uh, during a revolution. So in the case of the Greek civil war, the two Greek civil wars, actually what lies behind them is a clash between the different regions of Greece. So it's mainly the Peloponnese against the islands and Rumeli. And especially in the second civil war in, in 1824, this is more, uh, these regional lines are more clearly defined and made. And so what you have there is the Peloponnese going against the islands and Rumeli. And the reason is, this is something that we tend to forget, is that there is this rumor, but actually it was a reality, that the Peloponnesians were trying to go at it alone, were trying to negotiate with the great powers and with the Ottoman Empire of some sort of autonomy or uh, some sort of independent status or whatever, but only for the Peloponnese. And that created, of course, a huge reaction from the islanders and, and the Rumeliotes, And for the Rumeliotes, this is crucial and also for the islands because that was an existential threat. Because also we have to, sometimes we have to take into account the landscape. So the first region, if for example, the Ottomans would send an army as they did, the first region that would feel the impact would be Rumeli and of course the islands. And so for those islands to accept the Peloponnese to go at it alone would probably it would be a path to destruction. So, of course, they couldn't allow that, and they turned against the Peloponnese. And what that means, the Rumeliote forces, some of the best military forces in the region, invaded the Peloponnese. And in a way, for me, that is the moment when the revolution was nationalized. Again, because we have to think in simple ways. The moment that an army of your fellow Greeks invade the Peloponnese, it is the moment that the 
revolution is becoming national. You mentioned um, just a moment ago about the foreign powers. They played a huge role in helping Greece win its independence. What role did they then play in forming a government, if any? Well, first of all, there are two ways in which they actually facilitated the creation of a government. The one is their intervention in the Navarino Bay and the defeat of the fleet of Ibrahim Pasha. So this is something that actually saves the revolution. We shouldn't forget what was happening before that naval battle because uh, Ibrahim Pasha had taken over the Peloponnese, like the heartland of, of the revolution. At that moment, the fate of the revolution was in jeopardy. So what happens is that they intervene and immediately you have to have a government on some some sort of a political system because the message was that now we're going to have an independent state or some kind of, you know, maybe autonomous state. No one knew at the time. But the message was that this question of Greece is over. So we're going to have a new uh, state-like political order, whatever that is because they know that there are many local factions, there, there, there were two civil wars. So what they, they're doing, they're trying to make sure that you have a legitimate government, or at least an effective government, that, a government that can actually govern. So what they do, they're pushing for uh, the selection of someone to lead the government and to be the head of the government, and that is, of course, Ioannis Kapodistrias. And they're backing the, the, the selection of Kapodistrias. At the same time, actually, Kapodistrias was elected by the National Assembly, but there was pressure to, to elect him. They're also pushing for the selection of a monarch to lead future free or independent or whatever country. I want to pose the next question to Saki, if he could speak a little bit about Kapodistrias and who was he as a person? His name was being pushed upon to be chosen, but there must be something in his character that led to that. Well, Kapodistrias has acquired the status of a martyr almost uh, because he was assassinated in 1831. And that has actually obscured some of the most important aspects of his life and role. Kapodistrias was born in the 1770s in Corfu. He grew up as the third son of a very noble aristocratic family of the Kapodistria. His uh, training was uh, in medicine, like many people at the time, and he was also uh, appointed in his 20s as uh, a minister in one of the top of the uh, Septinsular Republic, this uh, semi-independent state of the Ionian Islands. So he then begins to learn the art and craft of politics very early on. Experience that he used and enriched during his years as a minister of the Russian Tsar. And when the revolution breaks out, he becomes what one historian, Thanos Veremis, has called the secret leader of the revolution, meaning that although he has turned down the leadership of the Filiketeria, he participates ardently and tirelessly by writing letters, uh, gathering the support of Philhellenes in Switzerland. Uh, Einarth, the, uh, the future banker and uh, great Philhellene, uh, uh, was uh, a close friend. And uh, Kapodistrias is uh, trying to steer the revolutionaries towards achieving as much as possible. For example, he suggests that they turn down the act of submission of 1825, which stipulated that Greece becomes a sort of autonomous, but under British protection state or region in 1825. So he pushes them to reject that. He does not agree with that. And then in 1827, he's elected uh, as Michalis said earlier with a term of seven years 
as uh, the governor. But what he does, since he he knew that he had to uh, come into this in a very uh, strong manner, he was an outsider effectively, and he had not been in Greece at all. Uh, so he knows that he has to rule with what some people have argued with an iron fist. Uh, so he cancels the articles of the constitution. He does not follow them, and he creates a self uh, an, an appointed government uh, government by him. So a few people to rule with him. He also brings in his some of his uh, his two brothers from Corfu, other Ionians he knew and trusted, which also created opposition from the beginning. It is telling that the ship owners of Idra and Spetses, for example, did not vote for him in the National Assembly. They left uh, in abstention which do not bode well at all for what happened later in 1831 and the uprising of the Idra, let's say, opposition against him. I'll pose this question to Mikhaili now. Um, Saki referred to him as ruling with an iron fist. Was that what Greece needed at that time? Did that style of leadership make him a good leader? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that you needed an effective government after so many years of war and during which the country had been you know left in a in a in a very bad state in terms of in, in material terms i'm not talking about politics here or uh, on the military front so in very simple social and economic terms that the, the country was devastated at the time yes you did there was this, this need for an effective and uh, efficient government at the same time, I don't think that that was all you wanted. And the reason is that, and that's a problem that I find with Kapodistas, who, you know, it's someone to admire sometimes, but actually someone to be critical of. And the reason is he was, he had a huge experience of the high imperial context. He was, you know, he was working, he, he was employed in the Russian administration in the Septicular Republic, later on in the Russian diplomatic service. He was a man, a statesman, as I said, of small states. He actually uh, participated in the making of Switzerland, of the Swiss uh, constitution, later in, in Bessaravia, in Bessaravia. And, and the same goes for Greece. But at the same time, he, didn't, he lacked that, if you wish, subtleness to deal and to negotiate with local leaders, with local population, with farmers, with uh, sailors, those who were actually... Uh, the people of Greece at the time. So that authoritative culture did not go well, did not fit with local political culture that existed. And we should not forget also something that many historians tend to leave aside. The revolution itself had created a constitutional experience, an experience, a political experience that had made people live with, with all the problems that that involved, but live with a constitution, both with political processes that were inclusive and not exclusive. And Capodistria had no experience of that, experience that other people during the revolution, because of the revolution, had. So it was difficult for him to navigate through these different political cultures and that experience of revolution, because he had not experienced it. So that made him a kind of iron faced man, but at the same time, uh, someone not being felt close enough by people uh, and local leaders, but also people at, at the time. And I think that is what brought that fate uh, to Capodistria, not just the opposition against him, but ultimately his death. 
tell me um, about that. What happened after his assassination? First, what led up to it and then what came after it? Well, what led to it is something also that Sykes uh, talked about is the rise of the opposition. And then there is this incident that had to do with a law that was passed about uh, gambling and stuff like that. That was, if you wish, what made people kill him. But actually what lies behind it is what I said, is that unwillingness of Capodistria to negotiate and to talk with local leaders and local political systems and people who had not the same background as he had. So what comes after his assassination? Well, what comes after is anarchy. And that is the reason why is, again, that constitutional question, if you wish, but the main political question of the revolution, which was, where does power lie? So again, when Capodistrias dies, that thing, you know, the central government becomes more of a problem than the solution to the problem. Because you have the local leaders and the local regional systems coming back uh, with a force. So it leads to anarchy and the existence of the Greek state is in jeopardy at that very moment. No one knows what, what, what is going to happen because don't forget the great powers who are supposed to be the protectors of, of Greece and the independent state do not know who to negotiate with. There is no sovereign or no, uh, you know, there's no political figure with whom this, they could negotiate. So what they do is that they pick a monarch. They choose uh, a monarch, uh, Otto of Bavaria. He was the son of uh, the Bavarian king, and he's uh, made into uh, a king. The funny thing here is that when the great powers choose Otto and they put that in a treaty, they say, they claim that they took that right from the Greek nation. So, of course, no one had given them that right. There's no, there was no national assembly that actually gave the powers that right. But it is telling of the need of the great powers to justify somehow that move that they're doing. There's, they need to have some sort of legitimacy for choosing a king for a new state. And I'll post this to both of you because I feel a little confused. So they fight this revolutionary war. They want to govern themselves. They want to be in charge of their future. And then Greece ends up being a monarchy. Like I know you mentioned it, but I still just, I can't wrap my head around it. How do you go from fighting bloodshed? I mean, we've talked seven episodes about this and they're like, okay, sure. King Otto, come rule us. I I have a really hard time understanding this. Explain, (laughs) please. Open to both of you. Well, if I may uh, start, I would suggest uh, us to think uh, around monarchy as a system of government, which is, it is the rule of the times. You know, there's many, there's hardly any Republican state, uh, non-monarchical state. I mean, there is that one of the Ionian Islands, but it's it's not independent. It is ruled by a constitution that has been dictated to the Ionian people uh, by the, um, His Majesty, the King of Uh, Great Britain. So it's not really uh, democratic either, but it's not monarchical. So that's also an exception. And I think uh, Greeks from very early on are not uh, seeing this antithesis, this opposition uh, necessarily between a constitution and a monarch, you know, because what comes later, as we'll talk about, is a constitutional monarchy and for a very long time in Greek history. So uh, at the time, a monarchy is not really the uh, something that is uh, completely out of the visions of uh, several people. Some are Republican, it is true, uh, but by no means uh, all the revolutionaries. 
And in fact, from very on, early on, they start to negotiate with the great powers who are, might be a good candidate to be appointed. And uh, the way my monarch was uh, picked was by going for the most Philhellenic monarch at the time, which was King Ludwig of Bavaria, which uh, he has created a sort of replica of Athens in his, in his capital, in uh, Munich. And he is uh, willing to send his second son, Prince uh, Otto, with also a significant force of around 4,000 Bavarian uh, soldiers, which is basically the king's uh, personal uh, guard, almost, and a force of you know, maintaining public order, which you cannot really uh, find as surprising because they had a, a very good knowledge of what was happening in Greece uh, at the time. To add to what Saki said, about the monarchy and the monarchical principle. Now here we have to go back to the 18th century and how people at the time were thinking. So the thing with the monarch was that it was considered as the unitary power, as a power that neutralizes the factional factional politics. And this is, of course, an old idea. The reason was that for these people, they knew that because the system is a federal one, and that means that it is fragmented, what is that power that gets that fr- fragmentation, that, that, that danger of being, of having the system dissolved, than a monarch? A monarch to whom everyone can look up to because he's supposed to be, not to belong to any locality, to any local uh, entity, and to any local, to be attached to any local leader, but than a monarch. So the monarch is, is the one who unifies the political entity, and in the case of Greece, the nation, because it is that it has that unifying power. So you have calls for a monarch from from, from the very beginning. These are talks that are being uh, held also during the revolution by most leaders, because they can see the problem of factions and the problem of classes between regions. And what is that power that can solve that class between regions? Well, a monarch. And Later on in the 1830s, the powers, because they know that and they have this also in their mind, it's not just a diplomatic way to solve things, but it's also to make sure that the new state will have political stability. And the political stability in their mind is given by the existence of a monarch. So now we have a monarchy. King Otto arrives. Tell us a little bit about him. There's not, there are not many things that you can say about him uh, as far as the moment that he came is concerned. And the reason is that he was underage. He was a young boy, actually. And of course, that created a problem, but actually it was solved. And the way it was solved was uh, by the establishment of a regency. What's a regency? A regency was a committee of three persons that was ruling in place of the king. So they had the right to rule in place of the king until the king would come to the age that he would be able to be a king, uh, to rule as a king. So there were always three persons. Uh, there were some changes uh, because of some uh, factional politics among these three persons committee. Uh, but it is the committee of three people that ruled Greece until King Otto came of age. And he came of age in 1835. And again, of course, it was, in a, very effici- it was a very efficient government, actually, the, the regency. Uh, during this span of almost two years, uh, about two to two and a half years, they produced a legal system. They produced the legal codes that some of which are still in force in Greece. They set up an administrative system 
So the system that was first put to force in, in Greece, in the new state, was made by that regency. So they were very efficient. Of course, they had the experience, the administrative experience. And one of them, Georg von Mauer, who is my personal favorite, was a very known legal scholar at the time in Europe. Uh, of course, he was from Bavaria, but actually he was a famous scholar. Even Karl Marx has written about him. Then, of course, the moment that uh, Otto came of age in 1835, you know, the regency was dissolved. And so it was all up to King Otto. And, of course, he ruled as an absolute monarch until 1843. Then you have a pronunciamento, a sort of an insurrection uh, taking place in Athens. And you have the first National Assembly, the first non-revolutionary National Assembly that produced the first constitution. From that on, moment on, from 1844 onwards, Greece is ruled as a constitutional monarchy. Mikhaili, thank you so much for being here today. You add such depth, such layers to our conversation here about the Greek Revolution. And we're so happy that we could have had you back uh, for our final episode. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me and for giving me the opportunity to talk for such uh, an important issue. Thank you. That was Mikhaili Sotiropoulos, adjunct professor at the University of Thraki and postdoctoral fellow at the University of Athens. We now have a Greek state. What do you think the legacy of the revolution was? One of the key uh, legacies, I would say, is the, the right of uh, self-determination. And what is self-determination? Well, very simply, is the right of a people to choose its own path to political, social, and cultural development. So for that to happen, you need to have, uh, you need to have in the Greek case, a revolution and the emergence of a national government. Otherwise, the democratic principle, the constitutional principle of self-determination is not even possible, you know, it's unthinkable. So you need to have that first in order to have the right of people to choose their own path. It does not mean that they will always choose the right path or the path that is, uh, let's say, for the interests of the many and not the few, but at least they need to have that in place in order to be able to, to choose a government. We learned that Greeks started this revolution while they didn't identify as Greeks, they identified as Christians. So how did that sentiment carry forward in this new nation? It is much more than a sentiment. It is a constitutional principle. So the constitution of 1827, the most uh, binding, let's say, uh, of the earlier ones, uh, it stipulates that those who are Greek citizens are Christians or have been born in Greece or uh, they have Greek family. And uh, this creates a precedent, although it does recognize that uh, other religions uh, are tolerated, it uh, does set uh, the tone for the Christian identity of uh, the new nation. That also comes uh, with a national church. So it couldn't be any other way, of course, because uh, the patriarch uh, was an Ottoman official. So the new Greek government and state has to break away from the... Uh, Ottoman uh, official uh, patriarch and the uh, Greek Orthodox uh, Church uh, in general, the ecumenical uh, Orthodox patriarch. So let me give you an example. When Mavrokordatos in 1822, as leader of the Western Peloponnese, appoints a bishop in that region, he makes a very important and crucial decision, telling people that the Greek government is not only the one uh, that is responsible, that the one that is also the best uh, appoint, to appoint uh, someone, a religious leader, which, of course, before it was only the uh, privilege, the prerogative of the patriarch to do. So you have the, a new 
not exactly secular state, but definitely an authority that is different from the ecclesiastical one, which was the only one that existed for the Christians before the revolution. We know that a revolution costs money. How were Greece's finances when they were just starting out? Well, Greece, first of all, received two loans during the 1824 and 25 period, mostly from British uh, merchant bankers. And that actually advanced uh, the cause of the revolution quite significantly. They bought uh, ships with those funds. They were able to fund uh, the army and hiring Lord Cochrane and Richard Church, the Philhellenes that we talk about, uh, in the talk we talked about in the last episode. But uh, of course, the country is devastated after years uh, of uh, of war. Crops have been damaged, not just uh, grains, but also cash crops such as currants in the northwestern and north Peloponnese, especially. So the state is badly uh, in need of uh, funds that it cannot raise by itself. Capodistrias, who actually printed the first currency, the phoenix, uh, the drachma comes later. Capodistrias' currency was the phoenix. He estimated that the country probably needed around 60 million French francs to start rebuilding. And this is actually the amount that was given by the foreign powers to Otto's new regime, to King Otto uh, and his new regime. This is uh, something that gets depleted fairly quickly because of the needs of the new administration. You know, the palace is built, which is the present day parliament, uh, which must have been uh, a huge building at the time, towering over the, the, you know, the single story houses of uh, small houses of Athens. And, but it also goes to a large extent to pay for the expenses of the Bavarian army. So by 1842, the administration, the Bavarian king and his administration, his government have to uh, cancel the payments uh, of the debt. Is the debt crisis that Greece has experienced in the past 10 years, does it find its roots in Greece's history? I feel like there's a, a pattern of financial mismanagement and uh, debt accumulation. There is definitely a pattern uh, that uh, all countries experience. Uh, in uh, There are periods in their history that they go through fiscal consolidation as an adjustment, as it's called, so they don't have extensive uh, debts or uh, they don't have a lot of exposure to creditors, and there are times when they do. Uh, Greece is in the same pattern, Uh, but the loans of the 1990s and early 2000s are really to blame for the the derailing of public finances in 2010 onwards, until again, uh, fiscal consolidation did occur in 2018-19. So the country was able to, to have a surplus, which is really the indication uh, of uh, fiscal consolidation, as well as keep repaying its uh, uh, loan obligations. Uh, but back in the 1820s, the Greece, the Greece that came out of the revolution, the country, uh, the state was overburdened, it is true, with the revolution loans and uh, the... Um, loan to King Otto of 60 million francs, which did set the pattern. That's when it starts. The revolution liberated a small part of what we know as Greece today. Saki, could you explain which parts were included in the new state and which ones weren't? Yes, the Greek state was comprised of the Peloponnese, uh, the area we now call uh, Sterea Elava, so eastern and uh, from Mesolongi to uh, Attica, including the island of Evia, which was also negotiated. And the islands of Sporades, so Skiathos, Kopelos, Alonisos, and Skiros, and the Cyclades Islands. This is a very small part of the, as was known at the time, the Greek world. And that is what creates one of the frustrations of 
the outcome of the revolution in the new state. Michalis mentioned earlier that the constitutional principle and achievements and gains of the revolution were not translated into the form of government under Kapodistrias or King Otto, and that created resentment. Equally, the fact that at least 2 million, as it is estimated, of Greek Orthodox people lived outside the borders of the new state created what became known as the principle and ideology over time of the Megali there, the great idea. So what happened to all of those Greeks who lived outside of the borders? In 1844, a already seasoned politician by then and Prime Minister Ioannis Koletis, who started his career as an advisor to Ali Pasha in Yanina and uh, served uh, in several revolutionary governments. And he is mostly known as the leader of the French party in Greece. He announces to uh, the newly appointed and uh, constituted Greek parliament the principle of the Megalidea. So the ambition to include as many Greeks as possible that lived outside the country's borders within this, uh, with this, this uh, larger Greece. The only way to achieve this, of course, is at the expense of the Ottoman Empire, because that's where most of the Greeks who did not become part of the Greek state, members of the Greek state and nation, uh, were uh, lived. They, they were uh, to be found. So this sets off uh, very slowly initially, because Greece has by no means the capacity to attack and claim territories. Just to say very briefly that the expansion of the Greek state happens in 1864 with the inclusion of the Ionian Islands, granted to the new uh, monarchy of Greece uh, and, the new, and to the state, and the inclusion of Epirus and Thessaly in 1881, without Greeks actually firing a shot. So they were part of uh, allowing Greece to grow as part of the foreign policy of uh, Russia, Britain, and France uh, against the Ottoman Empire. What a history, what a story. That brings us to the end of our seventh episode of the idea of Greece. Saki, do you think we achieved what we set out to do when we first started talking about this a year ago? I think we achieved to bring the revolution and its story to as many people as we can uh, through the, the medium of the podcast. I, I think we had we had a quite easy job in the in the sense that so many people around the world of uh, Greek origin and heritage, but not only are interested in the history of the revolution precisely because of the 200 years uh, anniversary. We hope that uh, we did quite a lot. Uh, we did as much as we set out to achieve, and we certainly looking forward to exploring other aspects of Greek history in future podcasts. You know, for me, um, this has been an incredible education. I went to Saturday school. Uh, I learned about this. Uh, I didn't retain a lot of the information, but it was presented to me. So I feel that there are so many people who are going to, to take this and move forward and learn more. And even if this is all they take um, as an enhanced education about um, the Greek revolution, I definitely think we've done our part. But I'm, I'm just curious. I just want to ask you one more question before we wrap it up. You do this. You've studied this. You teach the revolution. Was all of this information top of mind or did you have to re-educate yourself about matters of the revolution? I'm really grateful for, for us doing this uh, because it forced me to think about how to talk about the history of the revolution beyond uh, the classroom, the specialist audience, uh, and to, to a broader uh, range of people. Well, I thank you, Saki, because I benefited from, uh, from your expertise and your knowledge. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, George. And I hope we made it as enjoyable as possible during these very difficult times, you know, try to take people's minds a little bit away from uh, the struggles that uh, everyone's facing and to think about, you know, something that we hope has a contemporary significance and meaning as well. You know what? I'm a little biased, but I think we did. This podcast was produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes for helping make this happen. Our researchers, Angelo Lascaris, Terry Katersos, and Chris Grafos. Our resident historian, Sakis Gekas. Our editor is Stan Papoulkis. Reading performed by George Scandalis. Original music composed by Dimitris Petsalakis. Special thanks to our guest, Michalis Sotiropoulos from the University of Thraki, and to all the historians who joined us on this podcast series. Our executive producer is Sandra Gionis. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsor, Agape Greek Radio and the Greece 2021 Committee. I'm Georgia Balogiannis. On behalf of the History Committee, thank you for joining us on this journey called The Idea of Greece. The honor was all ours. You can find the entire series on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts and hhf.ca.